This is Costume Drama Rewind, and we're your hosts, Megan Chet and Laura Skog. Today, we're taking you on a journey to the past, which we guess is what we're doing every week. Anyway, this week, we're tackling our first cartoon with DreamWorks Anastasia. It was released in 1997 with Donald Bluff and Gary Goldman directing, and it has a star-studded cast that includes Meg Ryan, John Cusack, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lloyd, Kelsey Grammer, Bernadette Peters, Hank Azaria, and Kirsten Dunst. It's 1916, and Angela Lansbury, who plays the Russian dowager Empress Marie, narrates the scene. The Romanovs are celebrating 300 years of ruling the Russian Empire with a big fancy ball at the Winter Palace. She's leaving to go back to Paris soon, so she gives her eight-year-old granddaughter Anastasia, voiced at this point by Kirsten Dunst, and who at this point was actually 15, right, a fancy little music box that plays their special song, Once Upon a December, along with a necklace inscribed with Together in Paris that also serves as the key to open the box. The party gets crashed by Christopher Lloyd as Rasputin, who's pissed that the Romanovs have betrayed him. It's never actually explained how they betray him, unless it's by not inviting him to the ball, which, in that case, fair point. (laughs) (laughs) He curses them all with death, using a special reliquary. This curse spurs the people to storm the palace, kicking off the Russian Revolution, and it's only because a servant kid opens up a secret passage in the palace walls that Anastasia and Angela Lansbury get out. While they're booking across the ice, Rasputin tries to stop them, but he gets swallowed up by the icy water. Angela is able to get on a train, but Anastasia falls to the platform and they're separated. Flash forward to 1926, and Anastasia, or Anya, is now 18, she's got total amnesia about her former life as a princess, and she's voiced by Meg Ryan. She's graduating from the orphanage and is supposed to go start a job at a nearby fish factory. But because she's the epitome of plucky, sassy, tomboy heroines from the 1990s, Anya Stasia instead decides she's going to go to Paris by way of St. Petersburg or Leningrad, which it was actually called at this point, to hopefully solve the mystery of her Together in Paris necklace, which somehow has not been stolen off of her this entire time. <laughs> she's soon accompanied by a puppy she names Puka, and when she arrives in St. Petersburg, she's told that a guy named Dmitri can help her get travel papers to leave the Soviet Union. He's at the Winter Palace. Dmitri, as it turns out, is a young con artist, voiced by John Cusack, who, along with his Russian aristocrat buddy, Vlad, played by Kelsey Grammer, is trying to find a young woman to pass off as Anastasia so he can get the prize money that Angela Lansbury has been offering for anyone who can restore her granddaughter to her. When Anastasia stumbles upon them at the abandoned palace where they're staying, she's conveniently standing in front of a mural of the royal family so that he can see she looks just like a Romanov. Your plot points are here! (laughs) (laughs) He and Vladimir Grammer pitch their scheme at her, but instead of realizing it's just a money-making opportunity, she thinks they're just going to go to Paris and see if Angela Lansbury knows who she might be. Just out of the goodness of their hearts. For someone who grew up in a Soviet orphanage, she is incredibly naive. Somehow, Anastasia's presence at the palace reactivates Rasputin's reliquary, which has just been hanging out with Rasputin's old sidekick, a talking albino bat named Bartok, voiced by Hank Azaria. Guess what? Rasputin's back. He's an undead zombie because the curse isn't complete yet. He's got a killer off once and for all. He first tries to use demon minions to send the train that they're on plummeting off a cliffside, which is basically what Rufus Sewell did back in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. 
but they managed to escape and apparently walk all the way to Germany in like three days. I actually checked this on Google Maps, uh-huh. and it would take 12 days of continuous walking to get to a port in Germany, <laughs> and only another nine days after that to walk to Paris itself, so the gang do not really have a future in travel planning. <laughs> Well, when they finally get on their boat and set sail, Rasputin almost gets her to sleepwalk her way overboard, but Dimitri saves her because apparently, like, nobody else is on deck to notice. All the while, Dimitri and Anastasia are obviously developing feelings for each other because they're the only hot people in this movie. Or, they're the only people in this movie, apparently. (laughs) They get to Paris, where they have to meet Sophie, a.k.a. Bernadette Peters, who's basically vetting people before they get to meet Angela Lansbury. Sophie buys the story and she takes them shopping at Chanel and partying all over Paris in preparation to meet Angela Lansbury at L'Opera Garnier that night. The dress that Anastasia wears for this definitely was not historically accurate for the 20s, but it's her Emily in Paris moment at the opera and she looks fabulous. I still covet that dress. Oh my gosh, yes. Turns out Murder, She Wrote is not having it, and even though Dimitri reveals that he's the boy who helped them escape, it takes him having to go all Grand Theft L'Automobile with her drive back home and finally showing her that music box he saved, like, great way to hide the lead, bro, before Jessica Fletcher agrees to meet with Anastasia. During this meeting, Anastasia gets a whiff of Angela's perfume and all her memories are suddenly restored. I guess it's somewhat believable that she has never again smelled peppermint in all her years at the orphanage, but also not really. Right. She has the necklace, they open up the music box, and they sing her song, She Really Is the Princess. Dimitri refuses to take the prize money, and he thinks she'll never go for him, because now that she's a princess and he's a nobody. But he's still got that great, like, swoopy 90s Sean Hunter hair. Oh my gosh, Yes. He also decides for some reason to go back to Soviet Russia, but, like, the news reports that she's alive, and so you know as soon as he gets off the train, he's gonna get killed by the Russian police. In terms of brains, Dimitri is very pretty. Very pretty. Angela Lansbury throws this huge ball to celebrate, but Anastasia is moping in the corner all night long because she is the worst. She's finally lured out to the garden where, surprise, it's Rasputin. Somehow they're whisked off to a bridge over the Seine, and somehow, once again, there is nobody else around. She and Rasputin fight, Dimitri shows up and gets in the way, and because it's 1990 girl power, Anastasia gets hold of the reliquary and crushes it, killing Rasputin off for real this time. She and Dimitri decide to elope instead of heading back to the ball, ditching her grandmother for a honeymoon full of adventure. And once again, the river barge they head out on this time is mostly devoid of other people. The end. First impressions. (laughs) I saw this movie back when it came out, and I absolutely loved it. While I'm more than happy to make fun of all the details that don't make sense now, it was still really fun to watch it again and see how it holds up these days. Yeah, this is also one that I saw, if not in theaters, because we weren't big theater people when I was a kid, at least right after its release to VHS. Remember oh, those? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I've always had great affection for it. And also, as may be apparent, just a little crush on Dimitri. Don't worry. I'm and his sure, really good hair. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. <laughs> So, moving on from matters of the heart, let's get right down to the heart of the matter. (laughs) I see what you did there. The movie starts off somewhat awkwardly, 
with the Dowager Empress Marie waxing nostalgic about an enchanted world of elegant palaces and grand parties. This is sort of like the opening narration of Gone with the Wind, in that it leaves out the stark and simple fact that for most of the population, it really wasn't all that great. In 1916, Russia was just a little more than 50 years out from the abolition of serfdom, several hundred years later than most of Europe. While in theory this was a big improvement, with the Russian government issuing each former serf a small tract of land to farm, they also owed the government a payment for it, which there was no chance they'd be able to afford on subsistence-level farming, so many families plunged deeply into debt that they could not find their way out of. Meanwhile, Russia was entering its own industrial revolution in the second half of the 19th century, so those who couldn't make a living on farms were flooding into hastily erected urban neighborhoods, which were also not great. Those who were still on the farms grew ever more resentful at the sudden mechanization of farming that left them still further behind. Uh, hi, my name is Leo Tolstoy, and let me interrupt Anna Karenina with approximately 300 pages of agricultural policy. Point taken. <laughs> a lot goes on in the next few decades, not that any of you signed up for a Russian history course. Uh-huh. <laughs> in short, the Romanovs come to see the increasing unrest including the assassination in 1881 of Tsar Alexander II, not as an impetus for continued reform, but as a sign that their predecessors had gone too far in reforming too much and giving people too many liberties. Well, that's a take. They try to reinstitute what they saw as old Russian traditions. We see folks in traditional Russian costume at the ball at the start of the movie, a nod to the court dress code that's imposed. After the disaster of Bloody Sunday, in which the Russian army fires on demonstrators and kills more than a thousand of them, Tsar Nicholas reluctantly agrees to the creation of a consultative parliament, the Duma, and then he tries very hard to never consult them about anything, (laughs) preferring personal rule. Left totally out of the narrative of the movie is that by the time it starts, Russia is deep in the middle of the First World War. The Tsar is at the front trying to personally lead the army. He's leaving the unpopular Tsarina nominally in charge. And it was all going horribly for everyone involved. Yeah, life wasn't that much better after the revolution either. The revolution was followed up with, uh, let me check my notes. Oh, more conflict and struggle. There's the civil war between the Bolsheviks and the uh, anti-Bolsheviks from 1918 to 1920. During this time, millions of people in southern Russia starved to death because the army seized food for itself. Then there's war with Poland in 1920. The Soviet Union was formed in 1922. Lenin dies in 1924. Stalin comes to power. Massive social and economic changes are occurring at this point in Russia as it's becoming, you know, a communist country. Life in the city is a little bit better because of trade, but most of the population is living in the countryside. During the famine that occurs, all the food from foreign trade goes straight to the city, like suck-it peasants. The government also bans access for most foreign journalists, and with a mostly illiterate population, government propaganda is really successful. So, in sum, getting out of Russia would have been highly attractive for Anya, Dmitri, and Vlad, But as the movie also depicts, it would have been very hard because they really cracked down on people leaving by the late 20s. But something that crossed my mind when watching this was that Anastasia wasn't the only person fleeing Russia in 1926. That's also the year that the infamous and influential writer Ayn Rand left the country. I like to imagine that she was like on the same train as Anastasia, and this helped influence the train focus in Atlas Shrugged. But obviously, just about as historically accurate as the movie... If only because, like, as we found out, there's, like, nobody else on that train. (laughs) (laughs) 
Somehow every conveyance is just devoid of people. Adding to everyone's troubles is the confounding problem of Rasputin, who probably never sold his soul for a demonic reliquary. He totally looks like he did, though. But he may have had some quirky resistance to death. Rasputin first gets close to the Tsar's family in 1906, when it seems that he's the only person who can cure the bouts of hemophilia experienced by the Tsar's son and heir, Alexei. Whatever Rasputin was doing did apparently work, though doctors today think that's more likely to have been the result of his command that doctors leave Alexei alone and, importantly, stop giving him aspirin for his hemorrhages, which we know today is a blood thinner. Whether or not his advice worked, Rasputin, who held himself up as a holy man in the Russian Orthodox tradition, was a really bad dude, freely accepting monetary bribes and sexual favors Ew. from those who came to him in need. Oh, yeah, it that, that that's a whole different. Did thesis. he even bathe at all ever? Ugh. Ugh. Eventually, a group of Russian nobles who resent his influence over the Tsar invite him over for an evening, and in their telling, they served him cakes and wine that are full of cyanide, which he happily tucks into <laughs> with no ill effect whatsoever. When that doesn't work, one of them loses patience and shoots him in the chest. Efficiency. <laughs> the conspirators have somebody put on Rasputin's coat and hat, and they drive him back to his residence so as to make it look like he returned home safely. And then they come back to dispose of his body, where they find that he is not only still alive, but rather spry. He springs up and tries to attack him, then flees. This is like a sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> they catch him in the courtyard, they finally shoot him dead, and they dump his body in the frozen river, where it's found just a few days later after two workmen find blood on a bridge railing and a boot on the ice. These guys were apparently not great criminal masterminds. His body, when it's found, has multiple wounds, many of which actually seem to have been post-mortem, a sign of just how unpopular he was. And the story of his quirky resistance to death has been called into question since then, but the historian Lucy Worsley repeats it in her excellent documentary series on the Romanovs, so I'm going with it, because Lucy Worsley would never steer me wrong. <laughs> Obviously, she's listening to this podcast and glowing at the compliment. So now the big question. How many Kokoshniks are we awarding to Anastasia? Hmm. I absolutely loved this cartoon when I was a kid. And I'm really biased, obviously, so I'm going to assign it for Kokoshniks. It's definitely not historically accurate. <laughs> really? <laughs> Dang. But there are a lot of references to the family's history and the history of the times, generally, that show the filmmakers did do a lot of research. And it's fun to watch. And I do think it's a fun way to introduce kids to the real history of the Romanovs, or at least that's what happened with me. That's when I started reading about them. And can we talk about that one scene, the Once Upon a December sequence, when the ghosts of the dancers come waltzing through the windows into the ballroom? It's gorgeous. Absolutely magical. I am going to knock a whole point off, though, because of the way that Anastasia totally blows the ball off at the end. Like, all of Europe's royalty is probably there. You are wearing this gorgeous dress that's based off in an outfit that the real Anastasia wore in real life. All the Russian nobles who have escaped the revolution, they're looking to you as their new hope and joy, and you blow this off because of a guy? Okay, Rory Gilmore. <laughs> yes. Holy accurate. So I continue to absolutely love this movie as an adult. Mm -hmm. The songs are fantastic, even when I'm not singing them. <laughs> The animation is gorgeous, and the little historical details they include are a lot of fun, 
And Dimitri is definitely the most attractive animated character with a Gilbert Bly level ability to gaze longingly. So much longing. But while it's supposed to be a kid's movie, I do feel strongly that there are still ways to gently introduce the idea that not everything in Russia was palaces and parties, and that the Russian Revolution might have been triggered by something other than a vengeful zombie faith healer. Zombies make everything better. But... Do they? (laughs) Let's unpack that at a later time. But on that basis, because I do think kids can often handle more than we give them credit for, even in a fun, light little movie with an anthropomorphic bat, I am awarding Anastasia three and a half Kokoshniks. So finally, a few sundry other notes. Dowager Empress Marie in this movie may have been extremely obtuse as to her own privilege, but she also lets me talk about one of my favorite hobby horses, which is how all the royal families of Europe are connected to and intermarried with one another. Despite Marie's dubiously Russian accent in this movie, she's actually Danish, the daughter of King Christian IX of Denmark. Her sister is Britain's Queen Alexandra, the wife of noted tomcat King Edward VII, and her great-nephew is current British consort Prince Philip. Dowager Empress Marie's daughter-in-law, the Tsarina Alexandra, is also of British descent, being the granddaughter of Queen Victoria via her daughter, Princess Alice. And that's both part of why she's so unpopular with the Russian people, given her British descent, and also how she passes hemophilia on to her son, Alexei. Queen Vic was a known carrier, and through her descendants, it spread into a number of the other royal families of Europe. The other thing that this branch of the family is known for are really good tiaras, and we see two of them in the movie. The most famous of them is the Kokoshnik tiara that's given to Anastasia when she reunites with her grandmother in Paris. Tiaras in this style became popular in Russia in the mid-19th century and were modeled on the shape of a traditional Russian headdress, part of the later Romanov's attempts to reassert their vision of a pre-industrial, pre-modern Russia. The one shown in the movie was actually made for the Dowager Empress Marie, and her sister Alexandra over in Britain liked it so much that she ordered one for herself, and it's still in the collection of her descendant, current Queen Elizabeth. The other really famous tiara that we see in the movie is the Grand Duchess Vladimir tiara, worn by the Dowager Empress Marie. That's the one with the tall diamond curlicues and dangling jewels that can be swapped out between emeralds and pearls. That tiara has also made its way into the current Queen of England's collection, where it's reportedly one of her favorites for state occasions, and is also one of the choices that it's rumored Meghan Markle asked to wear for her wedding in 2018. The scene where Sophie takes them shopping in Paris and they sing while hitting up the Eiffel Tower and all the other popular places features a number of historic figures, artworks, and places that have connection to Paris or the 20s. We're talking about the paintings of Monet, Degas, Van Gogh, Rodin and his statues, Josephine Baker and her pet cheetah, Sigmund Freud, writer Gertrude Stein, actor Maurice Chevalier, aviator Charles Lindbergh, the burlesque call Moulin Rouge, and the Can-Can Girls, the dancer Isadora Duncan, and Coco Chanel's shop. It's really hard to overstate the role that Paris had as the cultural center of the world during the 20s and 30s. Writers, musicians, artists, and socialites all crowded there after World War I. Paris is where a lot of fashion designers that we still recognize today got their start, like Elsa Schiaparelli, whose firm designed Lady Gaga's inauguration dress from the other week. The Olympics were held there in 1924, and generally tons of immigrants fled to the area during the 20s, including people who fled Russia, like our trio. The 20s in Paris were called Les Années Folles, or the Crazy Years, to describe this boom in art, pop culture, financial prosperity. 
The music box that Angela Lansbury gives Anastasia in the movie looks a lot like a Fabergé egg, which is fitting because the Romanovs were really fond of them. The House of Fabergé Jewelry Company was started in St. Petersburg in 1842 by the Fabergé family. The whole egg thing began with Tsar Alexander III, who would give his wife blinged out eggs for Easter. But in 1885, he began commissioning the Fabergé company to make them. I also like to farm out all my craft projects. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that amused you so much. His son, Tsar Nicholas II, continued this, having two made each year for his mom, Angela Lansbury, and his wife. The eggs were extremely intricate, and each one had surprise items inside. But, like, not chocolate, like, jewel stuff. (laughs) Some eggs were made for other clients, but this was mostly a Romanov thing. 1916 was the last year that Nicholas was able to give them out, and after the Russian Revolution, the company got seized by the government. The Fabergé company that makes eggs stuff today is not actually owned by the family. The imperial palaces were seized for government use, meaning that Dmitry and Vlad couldn't have actually been camping out there. And the government also seized up everything in the palaces, including the eggs, but predictably a lot of stuff was either stolen or vandalized. While some of the Romanov Fabergé eggs are still lost, many are in either public or private collections all over the world, and some have only been identified recently. This brings me to another point. I was amused by the uh, Easter eggs in the movie. But um. <laughs> The bridge Anastasia finally kills Rasputin on is the Pont Alexandra Troisium. It's named after her grandfather, Tsar Alexander III, because of his role in forming the Franco-Prussian alliance. Remember all those alliances we talked about in our Joyeux Noel episode? Everything in history connects together! And her father actually laid the foundation stone for the bridge. IMDB says that Anastasia's drawing she did as a kid that the movie shows was actually based on a drawing that she did, and one of the letters that Anastasia wrote in real life, her sister Olga did make fun of it using the same insult that the movie used. And in the Rumor in St. Petersburg sequence, someone tries to sell Count Yusupov's pajamas. That's the guy who killed Rasputin. (laughs) At least one of them. Poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Several tries. (laughs) And in real life, the Dowager Empress gave Anastasia's sister, Marie, a silver music box. I'm sure I wasn't the only early millennial who was extremely excited by the announcement in 2016 that the movie was being reimagined as a Broadway musical. I dragged my now husband to see it at the Kennedy Center in 2018, while we were still dating, and he still somehow married me anyway. (laughs) Probably because the musical does away with all of the more supernatural elements and takes on a more distinct political overtone. In the stage musical, Anastasia isn't being hunted by a vengeful zombie, but by a young Bolshevik officer named Gleb. Worst name ever. Who is determined to bring down the last of the Romanovs, but who also harbors some romantic feelings for Anastasia, who he met while she was sweeping the streets. All the tension and danger in the musical flows from the real-world threat of discovery, capture, and execution by the Russian government, rather than from sabotage by a group of glowing demons with engineering degrees. The musical keeps six songs from the original movie and adds two dozen more, including a couple that really slap, as the kids say. My Petersburg, which is Dimitri's It's Complicated Love Letter to the city he's leaving behind, is one that I honestly listen to at least three times a week. Anyway, the musical reaches its dramatic climax when Gleb breaks into the palace just before Anastasia's reunion with her grandmother is formally announced to the press. A fight ensues as he tries to kill her, but he's overwhelmed by his feelings for her and lets her go free, and she runs off with Dimitri. 
The musical ends with both the Dowager Empress Marie and Gleb Worst name ever. announcing that the search for Anastasia is over without revealing that she has been found. This is a sad little Easter egg of its own. When the movie came out in 1997, Anastasia's body had not yet been found, and the possibility was still alive that she had actually survived. Of course, in 2007, her remains were finally found, closing the door on that possibility, which I feel like the musical is in some way referring to here. We don't have any repeat actors this time for our actor count, but I was amazed at some of the names that came up for this movie. Lacey Chabert, 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 maybe. Gretchen Wieners from Mean Girls does young Anastasia's singing voice. Bernadette Peters plays Sophie, the call screener for Angela Lansbury. Billy Porter and J.K. Simmons are in the ensemble. And the voice of the Anastasia impersonator wannabe with the cigarette, the... Hello, grandmother. It's me, <laughs> Anastasia. Come to seduce you. <laughs> that woman. That is none other than Charity James, who did the voice of Elaine Marley in the computer game Escape from Monkey Island. This may seem really random to highlight, but the Monkey Island computer game series literally made me who I am today. I've never even heard of it. I'm in oh, trouble. Oh, Megan. Next time on Costume Drama Rewind, join us as we follow 50 years of presidential history through the eyes of one man reviewing the 2013 film The Butler. Join us on yet another journey to the past. Oh, somewhere down this road, uh, I know someone's and waiting. we're done here.